When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Growing up, my parents couldn't afford much for us, that being me, my older brother, and younger sister. They absolutely tried their best, but there were times where we went without heat or AC or even food. It was rough. Nowadays, all three of us kids are working hard to make our parents' lives a little bit easier as they get up there in age. We think Dad is on his way out soon, and from what I've seen... The spouse normally follows soon after. I tell you all this so when I complain in a little bit, I won't sound like a spoiled kid, because I'm not. I never was. I worked hard to be able to afford a place near work in a part of the city that was safe, clean, and just a few blocks from my girlfriend's place. I've been in this apartment for about two years, securing it right after college, and I've had zero complaints. The AC and heat work, the internet is fast, the neighbors are quiet, and there aren't any kids running around the halls at all hours of the day. But recently I've noticed something that is really starting to get to me. There has been an influx of spiders in my apartment starting around a month ago. Now, I don't hate spiders, but I certainly don't like them. I appreciate the work they do, but I'd prefer if they do it outside. So when I saw the first one, just a regular dandy long leg, I scooped it up in the Tupperware bowl and put it outside where it belongs. This happened a few times over the next week. So much so that I decided it was time to tell the guy at the front office and see if he could get someone out to check if there was some kind of infestation. He assured me he'd look into it, and I mistakenly took his word for it. A week passed, and when I heard nothing back from him, I called someone out myself. The exterminator explained that there was only so much he could do if there was a problem. Being that I was in an apartment complex, going around spraying insect killer was a no-go. The only way he could do that was with the permission of the person who runs the joint. The guy who ghosted me initially. Coming to terms with the fact that I'd have to take matters in my own hands, I began looking up ways to check for an infestation myself. The steps were pretty simple. Look for spider webs, any signs of egg sacs, keep the doors and windows closed, and make sure to do frequent checks of moist areas. Apparently spiders love that. I did a thorough check of my apartment, and to my dismay, found exactly what I didn't want. In the top right corner of my bedroom was an admittedly beautifully spun web. There was no spider in it and none of its meals that I could see. Knocked it down with a broom and thought nothing more of it. Until about three days later. Up until I removed that web, I was averaging at least one spider relocation a day. Most were daddy long legs or cellar spiders, but there were a few jumping ones. Those were a nightmare to get rid of, and more often than not, they met with a gruesome fate. Now, the web was back, but it looked 
different. The shape was more or less the same, but the actual silk was thicker. Instead of spider silk, it looked more like it was pulled from a white spool of thread. It took a bit more yanking to get it loose this time, too. It worried me. Had I just pissed it off, or was there a bigger spider that took up the opportunity to replace the old one? I found out the next day. That night, I went to bed feeling pretty good. I dealt with the web and told myself I'd get some kind of repellent from the store tomorrow. When I woke up, though, my plans changed dramatically. Normally on weekdays, I'd be woken up by an alarm around 6 or 6.30 to get ready for work. That morning, I woke up an hour earlier with a splitting headache. It felt as if I'd gotten blackout drunk at a concert and stood next to the speaker the whole time. Getting out of bed was an absolute chore, but once I was up, I found out how difficult walking would be. The slightest sound, like the springs in my bed squeaking, sent a horrid jolt of pain through my head. I felt like a bullet traveling through my eye sockets. A small amount of light coming from the streetlight outside may have well have been the sun, given how much it pained my eyes when I opened them. I'd never felt so much pain. Somehow, I managed to make it into the bathroom and turned on the lights to their lowest setting, which still felt like looking straight into floodlights. In the mirror, I made out my face, and at first I thought I was hallucinating. Behind my right ear was a knot, maybe the size of a golf ball. It was bright red and seemed to be pulsing. I couldn't quite tell, but I thought I saw black and yellow pus pour from it. I nearly vomited in the sink at the site, but managed to hold it back. Returned to the bedroom and called an ambulance for myself, and I'm glad I did. Just as the operator told me that help was on the way, I passed out. When I came to, I was lying in a bed at the ER. Thankfully, the sensitivity had worn off because the lights there were like spaceships. I looked around the room, and as I turned my head, I felt the bandage that was awkwardly placed over the bump and was happy to find that it was mostly smooth. There was still a small knot, but given its size before, I was more than happy. I was even more excited when Tatum walked into the room. She was listed as my emergency contact, not just because we'd been together for three years, but because my parents lived about a hundred miles away. When she saw me, she nearly burst into tears as she pulled me into one of her all-too-famous bear hugs. I really appreciate the love, sweetheart, but I just had something cut off my head, I said with all the love and respect in the world. Tatum could be a bit much, but it was part of why I loved her. She pulled away and smiled. I'm just glad to see you're okay. They told me you were complaining of a migraine, and what's up about that bump? I shrugged. I have no idea, to be honest. I only woke up about five minutes ago. I haven't seen a doctor since I got here. Tatum frowned. Well, maybe they'll be in soon. I'm going to step out and call your parents to make sure they know what's going on and try to convince them not to come all the way down here, she giggled. I smiled back, but I didn't feel it. It was wonderful to see her again, but... I was too worked up about what the hell was on my neck to think about it. Just a few moments after Tatum walked out, a doctor came in, clipboard in hand. Miss Kai Wong, is it? He asked as if there were 
any other way to pronounce it. I just nodded. So, Kai, how are we feeling? <sighs> okay, I suppose. My neck's a little sore and I'm really worried about what you're going to tell me. I let out a little laugh, though I think anyone could have told it was fake. It's understandable. Coming into the ER unconscious would rattle anyone. Now, he said, flipping over some pages, we had to take you in for an emergency surgery. It wasn't anything too scary or life-altering, don't worry. We just really needed to get that bump drained and cleaned up. Sorry about the free haircut, by the way. Putting my hand to the bandage, I realized they'd cut off most of the hair around my neck and ear. I wanted to care, and I think a part of me did, but I was more worried about what caused the visit in the first place. I asked plainly, So do you know what caused the bump? I went to bed around ten and woke up at five. That's only seven hours. How can something that big just appear over seven hours? He nodded, not taking his eyes from the papers in front of him. We settled on a spider bite. Once we'd cleaned it up for surgery, we saw the small pinpricks consistent with a spider's bite. Given the size of the bite and the bump, we knew it was a black widow bite. <sighs> my absolute worst nightmare. I swore in my head that I'd get the guy at the front office to pay for these bills after he'd done nothing to help. Don't worry, though, the doctor continued. We'd given you the anti-venom, and you'll recover soon. We're going to hold you for a few days to make sure the swelling doesn't come back. I nodded along as he talked, but I barely listened. That general disdain of spiders had now grown to a full-on fear. Just knowing that one of those eight-legged freaks were that close to my face made my skin want to crawl off of my body. The doctor left, and I curled into a fetal position, pulling the blanket up to my chin. Tatum spent the night with me that night, and thankfully was able to convince my parents that I was in good hands here. An hour or so later, Tatum fell asleep on the pull-out couch, and just as the sun was coming up, I felt safe enough to fall asleep. I woke up sometime that afternoon to the nurse coming in to change my IV. I didn't move much at first, not wanting to disturb him, but I could tell that the side of my head was already beginning to feel better. I was excited. Antivenom must have worked like a charm, I thought. Once he was done, he gave me a warm, good afternoon, before asking if there was anything I needed at the moment. I'm feeling a little nauseous. Is there anything we can do about that? He rubbed a gloved hand to his beard completely ignoring the point of the gloves, and then said, It can be that the effects of the bite haven't fully worn off, or you could just be hungry. I'll talk to the doctor for you and get you a menu from the cafeteria for dinner. I gave a weak smile and nodded. Thanks so much. He smiled back and left with no further word. Tatum was still asleep on the couch, softly snoring. I knew she'd sleep longer than me. She always has. For a second, I thought about waking her up, making her stroke my hair while we watched Finding Bigfoot, but I decided against it. She was probably just as stressed as I was, if not more. I'll just watch it myself. The remote was at my feet, and reaching for it was a mistake. As soon as my back left the bed and I made it into a crunch-like position, a burning, sharp pain blasted through my abdomen. I didn't want to scream, but my body just did. 
Tatum shot up from the couch and ran over to me. Babe, what's wrong? Are you okay? Clutching my now spazzing stomach, I left out a week. It's my stomach. Something's... Before I could finish, another white-hot jolt of pain flew through my insides. I swore as I started to feel it in my throat as well. Tatum ran for the door, swung it open, and just screamed at the top of their lungs, We need help in here! She's really hurt! Within minutes, my doctor and several nurses were in the room. Flattening out my bed and placing all kinds of stethoscopes and cold hands to my chest, stomach, and back. My doctor, despite looking quite young to be in his field, took control quickly. Her heart rate is way too high. We need to get that down and get this pain under control before we can do anything. He went on saying various words I didn't know and sent a nurse to get whatever it was he needed. Okay, Kai. He was nearly yelling so I could hear him over my cries of agony. We're going to give you painkillers. Don't worry, it won't interfere with the antivenom. That's about out of your system anyway. The nurse returned with a small vial and a fresh syringe. Three, two, one. The doctor counted down, shot the painkiller into my IV. The relief was nearly instant. Before I knew it, I was relaxing, breathing more regularly, and I could feel my heart rate starting to settle. The doctor turned to one of the nurses and whispered, We're going to need an ultrasound. Our stomach is swollen a bit. Maybe appendicitis. Nothing showed up. There were no signs of appendicitis, kidney stones, pregnancy, obviously, or anything they could really think of. I'll have to keep you a few more days, he said, just to see if there's another flare-up. I wouldn't want to send you home in pain like that. I didn't want to hear it, and neither did Tatum, as she had no choice but to go back home the day after the ultrasound. I could afford time off from work. She couldn't. I also had a valid reason. In the days that followed, my pain would come back, but only in short waves. It was keeping me up at nights, and I was basically never comfortable. No matter what they did, they couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Eventually, they had no choice but to send me home on antibiotics and some painkillers. To be fair, every test they ran came back inconclusive. The pain had subsided a bit, and the bite was nearly completely gone, just a small amount of swelling. Everything seemed to be looking up. I'd been seeing a nice decrease in the overall pain. I was able to function for the most part, and I'd even planned on calling work and telling them that I could come back soon. Hell, I had even planned a salon trip to get my hair fixed after having it shaved for the stitches. All that hope that things would return to normal collapsed in front of me about three hours ago. I was FaceTiming with Tatum when, out of nowhere, I felt a tickle in my throat. I told Tatum to hold on a second, that I was going to go get some water to try and clear my throat. After two large gulps and a few coughs, the tickles seemed to subside. I went back to the couch and started talking to Tatum again, but they looked worried or scared when I came back. Babe, your nose is bleeding. What? I said, shocked. I put my finger to my nostril, and upon looking at it, I saw deep, red, crimson liquid dripping from it. Do 
Do you need to go back to the hospital? I can be over in a few minutes and drive you. I was trying to respond, try to even nod my head, but my body threw me into a coughing fit. That tickle had returned, and it was so intense I couldn't stop myself from coughing this time. My abdomen clenched with each cough. My throat felt like it was ripping. I dropped my phone and fell to the floor, unable to get more than a second of breath between coughs. Tatum was screaming, saying, I'm coming to get you right now, but I could barely hear them over my own coughs. Eventually, the taste of copper filled my mouth, and with each choke and hack, a spray of blood came with it. I started gagging, dry heaving, until eventually, with one final massive convulsion, my throat produced the most gut-wrenching sound I'd ever heard, and a large clot slopped out of my mouth to the floor. Moments before I passed out, I saw the legs of a small black spider wriggle and writhe before it stopped completely. And then it all went black. I didn't see the light of day until the following morning. I was doped up when I came to in a familiar hospital room with Tatum beside me. In the simplest way they could, they explained that somehow I'd ingested a spider, and from some freak, demented miracle, it didn't die once it reached my stomach. Instead, it laid eggs. Those eggs had begun to hatch, and they only knew one way out. I wanted to retch, but my body had nothing left in it, quite literally. A spider had done a number on my stomach's lining, and apparently a majority of it had to be removed, though I was lucky enough that the spiders that remained were dead. My meals are much smaller now, and I'm far more wary of people keeping windows and doors open in their house. I'm living with Tatum now. And she's done an incredible job helping me get back into work and just life in general. We have various spider traps through the house and my fears are beginning to dampen a bit. As far as the guy at the front office, well, we had quite the extensive talk. I can't say much here, but I can assure you if things work out in my favor, the medical bills will be taken care of. In the meantime, I'll leave you with a word of advice. Make sure that spider web is abandoned before you knock it down. You never know what they're planning. I was sitting cross-legged on the grass outside my house when I found it. It was a warm day with only a slight chill on the breeze to hint at the approach of autumn, and I was young enough to be nothing more than a stream of consciousness and curiosity. With the tufts of green I was gripping randomly pulled up a clod of dirt to reveal a compass beneath, I didn't think it was odd at all. I threw the clump aside and picked up the grimy silver object with my bare hand. The air held that same hint last Saturday. A deep breath brought a twinge of cold to my lungs, the first of the season, and the evoked sense of memory brought back that moment of discovery from so long ago. Where was that compass now? I couldn't remember what I'd done with it. I could guess that my parents had taken it from me, but I couldn't be sure. I spent last Saturday in the attic of my parents' house, rummaging through boxes. 
There was one box for each year of my life up to the end of college, and I found it in the box marked Jacqueline, first grade. It was just lying there between two stuffed animals with no plastic or wrapped paper or anything else. Someone had thought enough to keep it, but not enough to protect it. Lifting it, I examined it in the dusty light filtering from the attic air slats. The metal was chill against my fingers, silver as I'd remember, and intricately carved with patterns of interlocking vines. When flipped open, it revealed an inset, white circle under glass, apparently the only thing inside. I thought the compasses usually had a spinning pointer, so I angled it back and forth in the dimness, trying to... Oh, there it was. Strangely, the needle looked to be made of clear glass, such that it was very difficult to see. The first chance to use it came today, only two days later. There were four of us in the car this morning, and Shannon was driving. By pure chance, her phone died halfway to our destination, and Matt and Terry didn't have signal on theirs. I got the compass out of my bag and held it up to the sunlight. We know the general direction we're trying to go, right? They got a kick out of seeing a real compass and asked a bunch of questions. But I really didn't have much information to give them. Instead, I said, let's use this to find the cemetery. The silver exterior of the compass grew warm in my hand as I spoke. From pure instinct, I nearly dropped it, but it didn't get painfully hot. While I looked at it in confusion, I saw the glass needle inside flip and point directly ahead. As we approached an exit from the highway, the needle turned, remaining pointed right at it. I stared alternately at the compass, and at the exit as we drove past it, the needle continued to follow it until it was aimed behind us. I, uh, think we missed our exit. Terry had been looking over my shoulder. He said, Is it defective? Just the opposite. As we approached the next exit, the needle flipped again. There. Shannon slowed and took the curve. The needle oriented with us, guiding us down to a stop sign. Then it flipped and ended up hard right. A minute later, it pointed left and then straight ahead. We pulled up outside the cemetery not too long after. You were looking at your phone, right? Terry answered for me. No. That thing told us how to get here. Matt had not been previously paying attention, but he snapped out of his thoughts to absorb what was going on. We placed our flowers on our friend Brian's grave and stood above it in a half circle. So this is where they put him, Shannon murmured. Terry gazed down at his headstone. I didn't know him too well. It does suck when a friend dies. Across our half circle from me, Matt said, Hey, ask that compass for a different destination. See if it was a fluke. Shannon gleared. We're here to pay our respects. Who gives a shit? That's not him under the ground. He's dead, gone. He's, he's not here. Jesus, you're an asshole. It's not my fault. 
We just keep acting like it's a tragedy, but the truth is, Terry kept his eyes on the ground, and I studied the vine patterns in the compass. This was not the first such argument between Shannon and Matt. It was their way of coping with what had happened with our friend. As long as they were angry, they didn't have to feel anything else. But there was a time when we'd been happy. We'd all gotten drunk and wandered there, a temporary place, a lonely place, in the middle of a wide field. The construction site of a house that someone would one day live in. That memory had been lost to time, for there had been no way to tell where we'd been. We were drunk, it was nighttime, and the wooden frame of a house had no address on it. But now... Show me the way to that half-built house we once partied in. Upon hearing that, Shannon and Matt abruptly shot up and backed down from their argument. A human being was gone from our lives, and the only trace of his spirit that remained was now within reach. I said quietly, Get in the goddamn car. In absolute but expectant silence, we drove. Terry continued to watch the compass from over my shoulder while Matt sat and observed from the other side of the back seat. Shannon followed my finger as I pointed after the glass needle. Left, left, straight, keep going, keep going, right, keep going, down this country road, stop. We looked out the windows as one. We'd found it. After we climbed out of the car, and as we began the long walk across the field under the warm sunlight and chilly breezes, we finally began to speak again. I would have expected it to be done by now, Matt said with concern. That was what, three years ago? Shannon's eyes were wide as we walked. It's exactly like I remember. (laughs) I was so drunk I hardly remember a thing, Terry added, but... It does seem familiar. The compass was pointing directly at it. The silver was still hot in my hand. This was not normal. I knew Matt would push to destroy the compass as soon as possible just to be safe, but I wasn't ready to give it up just yet. Shannon, too, had been deeply wounded by seeing Brian's death. She would also vote to get rid of it. I put it away in my pocket so that they would think about it less. We entered the skeletal wood frame of the house and began picking our way over the discarded tools, lumber, and sheetrock. Huh, what do you know? Terry called over from one hallway that had no walls. He tapped the intermittent timbers. It's not rotting or anything. Matt moved his shoe through sawdust. Doesn't look like it's been half done for three years. I moved into the wider, unfinished room with Shannon, and separated from her somewhat as I wandered. I stopped in place when I saw the impossible. Behind the stack of lumber we'd sat upon all those years ago, there was a pile of discarded beer cans of the type we'd been drinking then. I looked back to make sure nobody was watching me, and I leaned down and angled one of the crumpled cans. few drops of beer spilled out. What were the chances 
that the house had just sat here for three years, unfinished but not rotting. Possibly slim. Even giving that one a pass, what were the chances that someone else had left a beer here of the same brand recently? I had to get them out before they realized what was going on. If they knew what the compass really did, they would definitely want to destroy it. It had guided us to the cemetery as normal, because we'd wanted to go to the cemetery as it was now, as it truly existed. But it had taken us to this house as we'd remember it. It had taken us to the construction site from three years ago. My thoughts reeled over the implications of something like that. One question kept repeating in my head. Where were we right now? The weather hadn't changed. When I peered out the glassless windows, it was still the same time and day. The only strange thing about the location was that it wasn't supposed to exist anymore. Construction sites are a very different kind of space, a temporary space, one that exists for a short time only to be replaced by a more or less permanent building that smells nice and has painted walls and places to sit. Was it possible that construction sites still existed somewhere out there once we could no longer access them? What did that mean for the universe? For existence? These were all questions I wanted to ask Matt, but he would insist we leave and destroy the compass immediately. A dark, haunting note hit me somewhere deep then. I can only describe it as the feeling of a long, trilling synth note from an 80s horror movie. Across the open front room, Shannon had opened a closet door, whose other side did not match its surroundings. She looked back at me with concern to confirm I was seeing it too. On the other side of that door, instead of the beginnings of a master bedroom that we could see to either side, was a completely different construction site. Terry and Matt soon noticed us staring, and they crowded up with us to peer through the open door. A single lean past made sure this was definitely a door to somewhere else. Try another door, Matt said, his eyes on the unfinished office building beyond. It's nighttime there. Terry ran back down the hallway he'd been exploring and opened another standalone door. It's raining in this one. Still some place under construction? Yeah. Shannon looked unhappily at me. Let's go, she called to the guys. Let's go, guys. We're, we're done with this. They didn't disagree. Still hoping they'd forgotten about my compass, I walked with them across the field of the car. They kept looking back, but nothing changed. It was only as we pulled away in the car and the half-built house finally went out of sight that Matt said suddenly, Stop! He turned around in his seat. Back up. I want to see something. His hunch had been right. Once we'd lost sight of the house, once we'd had to make a turn and weren't standing directly before it, the path the compass had opened had closed. 
Standing where we just explored was now a very nice house with a completed driveway, standalone garage, and two cars. Terry thought out loud. There must have been a whole system of construction sites in there. Like, they all still exist, just like, out there somewhere. I once heard an idea, Matt said, his eyes distant, that existence is just what we perceive, a series of experiences and symbols connected like a network or a spider web. Maybe we get from place to place through routes made of choices and experience like turns on a map, but that compass directs us off the map to places we shouldn't be able to reach. Onto other webs, defunct networks, like a program moving through the internet and somehow reaching an old computer in your basement that's not even connected anymore. Everything we've ever experienced, everywhere we've ever been, it's all still there, just unreachable. He turned in his seat. Normally. I didn't look back at him. I could tell he was watching me from the back seat. While looking at the road ahead, I said, Is that a bad thing? Shannon glanced at me. Terry let go of my seat and sat back. If used carefully and responsibly, no, Matt replied. But we have no idea how that thing works. What happens if you ask it the wrong question? A dangerous destination. What if you let something in our world? Or what if you lose it while you're somewhere that no longer exists? He wasn't wrong. He was never wrong. That didn't mean I wasn't still angry about it. It's mine. I found it when I was in first grade, and it's never caused a problem before. It doesn't feel haunted or evil or anything. What was I so broken up about? I couldn't articulate it. I just wanted to be anywhere, anywhere but here. Don't take this from me. Everyone was silent for a good ten seconds after that. Finally, Matt lifted his hands diplomatically. I mean, you're right. We've used it twice and nothing terrible has happened. Shannon looked him in the eyes from the rearview mirror. If she was going to use it more, how should she do it? He put a hand to his forehead. Oh God, we're doing this, aren't we? Terry just looked at each of us with a mix of curiosity and apprehension. That afternoon, we went to a hardware store and bought a ton of gear. The most important was rope. Lots of rope. Then we looked for a place to test the compass. We couldn't use Shannon's apartment because it had no outdoor space. Terry's place had a Labor Day cookout going on, and Matt's house was on a street that already had its own problems to deal with. Out back of my townhouse was the only option, but at least we had a long, flat span of grass and a few rarely used places to walk between communal garages where nobody would see us. The cruddy dirt lane we chose had a discarded baby carriage and several trash bins that had not been touched in months. Shannon helped me tie the rope around my waist, and I moved to the end of the dirt path. From there, I asked the compass to take me 
to that time on my back porch when we'd had a cookout. The glass needle swung around and pointed forward, so I followed it and stepped out to my backyard. Where before there'd been nothing but open grass, there was now a long table we'd once carried outside. It had been set with plates, forks, knives, napkins. The smell of cooking food was in the air, and I moved closer to the back steps to look through the little window. I didn't see anyone inside, but I could see food cooking on the stove. That was something Matt had suggested. If there was food, could I use the compass to feed myself for free? I opened the door, but then stepped back. Beyond was another grassy area, but I didn't recognize it. Someone had laid out a picnic near a tree. It was like the network of construction areas. A whole layer of reality full of old picnic and cookout spots. It occurred to me that people thought of these times often, so there were probably countless such places still held in existence somewhere by fond memories. Did they cease to exist when people stopped remembering them? I didn't step through the door. That wasn't part of the first test. Instead, I untied the rope from my waist and tied it around one of the metal fold-out chairs next to the cookout table. I walked back around the corner and found my friends standing there, waiting. Did it work? I nodded and joined them. Now that the backyard was out of sight, it should have reverted. We peered around the corner. The cookout table and chairs were still there. My rope ran up to one as I'd left it. That was good. That meant we could hold places open to avoid getting lost. Terry watched the other direction and came around the garage to test another aspect of what was happening. We saw him approach, but it was in a weird and disjointed double vision kind of way. He joined us in the alley, turned around, and blinked. Whoa. I didn't see any of that when I was coming from the other direction. It's symbolic, Matt said absently, his eyes on the rope and chairs. I don't think there's an actual physical bridge to another place. Otherwise, you would have walked right through it, bumped into something. I don't know, but you didn't. So the real world is obviously still there and operating normally, but from this perspective right here, looking in the direction of the compass told us to, we can reach that other place. Shannon looked extremely anxious. I don't like this. I asked. Please, can we just try the tests we agreed? She nodded and backed away. The other three of us pulled on the rope, dragging the chair toward us. It had felt real when I tied the rope around it, but it just disappeared when it came too near, and Matt pointed at the leg we could still see. The chair's still there, in that other place. It can't come back the way you did. Somehow I was certain. Because it doesn't have a mind. It's not aware. Something about these lost places was integral with memory, emotion, and the meaning of the location. It was entirely possible there was no actual metal fold-out chair lying half visible a foot away. Perhaps it was just 
a symbolic representation of one. We all happened to look away at the same time. And when we glanced back, now that the rope was with us, the remembered backyard was gone. In its place was the normal flat green Terry had walked over. Shannon held our arms close and asked, Where else are you going to try? Tie yourself again, Matt suggested. Then go someplace fictional, like from a book, somewhere harmless. That was a good idea. Shannon helped tie the rope around me and asked the compass, How do we get to Hogwarts? I felt strange for a moment, but the glass needle didn't move. How about Asgard? A strange spinning feeling briefly returned, but the needle again did not move. It's not going to work, I told them. I know these are fictional places. It's like I'm not even asking for real. Matt thought for a moment, then said, What about fictional places that are real to you? Huh? Like what? Like a memory palace. You know that technique where you try to remember things for a test by linking the facts to objects in a house? This compass seems to somehow be related to memory links and tags. Try it. The only time I'd ever made a memory palace was for the psychology test in college that had taught me about the concept. I focused and tried to recall as much of it as I could. At the same time, I asked the compass to take me there. That spinning feeling returned in force, nearly causing me to fall over, but the needle moved. The others stared at it in surprise. I began walking. The needle guided me around the edge of the building and out to the street. It's pointing at the car. At a loss for what else to do, we untied the rope and piled in. The needle took us on turn after turn until we finally came to my parents' house, where I'd just been two days before. They were still on their Labor Day weekend camping trip. I was living at home at the time. The compass took us upstairs and toward my bedroom door. When I reached out and opened it, it swung in to reveal a wide, blue marbled hallway leading back into dim gloom. Shannon asked, Is that it? It was. Exactly as I'd built it in my mind. And it was here where I constructed it, sitting at a desk and reading a psychology textbook. It was still bound to the physical location where it had been built. Shannon moved back. I'm not going in there. Then get something to block the door and keep it open like we did the rope, Matt suggested. We won't go too far in either. I was the first to enter. It was eerie, entering a place that I'd never actually been before except with my mind's eye. Had I really had all this detail in my head when I made it? The dark blue marble had incredibly complex patterns that looked almost fractal in nature. There's no way I made all this detail by myself, is there? 
While studying a jade vase on a marble pedestal that represented one of the answers to my test, Matt replied, It's probably all experimental, remember? You're not actually seeing details. You're just experiencing the dreamlike quality of believing there's detail. Here, check this out. He handed me the jade vase. It was intricately carved and full of patterns, but when I looked away and ran my hands over it, I felt a smooth cylinder that didn't match the sight at all. Indeed, there was no detail but that which I believed. I carefully put the vase back and moved after Terry, who had wandered deeper inside. He'd stopped in front of a blue marble door with a black stone knob. What happens if we open this? I caught his wrist before he touched the black stone. The half-built house was connected to another construction site, and the cookout was connected to other picnics. So, then with this door, he looked at me aghast, and then stared up at the high blue pillars and gloom-shrouded ceiling high above. Have you noticed there's no smells in here? He tapped his foot. More echoes? I didn't make any when I thought it up, I told him, equally amazed that this was possible at all. But the door will go to someone else's memory palace, or mind, or something. Who knows what we would find? We retreated quickly. Going old places that no longer existed was one thing, but walking around in a dark memory palace that had never existed was too eerie to handle for long. We piled into the hallway, moved the towel Shannon had shoved under the closed door, and opened it again to find my bedroom was normal. The access was gone. We went downstairs and stood on the porch. Shannon had grown increasingly unhappy. I know what you're going to do. Huh? I wonder if it's limited. Let's see how far back you can go, Terry said. What's, like, the oldest thing you can remember? Shrugging off Shannon's weird comment, I said, Honestly? I stared down at the compass. Finding this. I was so young then, and it was in the box marked first grade. Try to go there. See if it works. I thought about where I wanted to go. Felt very strange, and then caught my balance. The compass pointed toward the side of the house. I went around the corner and found the lawn, not as it was now, but as I remembered it. Wide. Big. Green. It was not a tremendous change, but I could feel that I was back there. And so was Shannon. She came at me with a fury, shouting, I know what you're going to do. You can't. What? I asked her as I tried to fight her off and keep her away from the compass. What are you so worried about? These places, she screamed at me. They're human memories, imagination, beliefs. Sooner or later, you're going to ask the compass to show you the way to heaven or hell, and it's going to take you there. My God. That was an incredible idea. What if our beliefs made those places real somewhere? If abandoned construction and memory palaces really existed somewhere, why not heaven? What if instead of dying, we could literally walk people to heaven? Or instead of capital punishment, show criminals a literal and real hell and scare them straight? 
even send the worst offenders there. Matt and Terry pulled away from me then, and the three of us dragged her kicking and screaming back to reality at the front of my house. I was absolutely seized by the implications of what she'd said. This could change everything. Forget religion and sin and judgment. No need for anyone else's approval. We could just walk to heaven. But where would it be? If my memory palace had anchored where I thought I'd end up, was the walkable link to the afterlife somewhere in Africa or the Middle East? Who had first had the thought? Who had first come up with it? Were there millions of different afterlives that were all different based on personal beliefs and imagery? And if only sentient thinking beings could move in and out of these surreal places, what did it mean if we dreamt up a sentient thinking being like a god or gods? Could we find them, bring them back here? Or did they even need to come here? Did our belief make them real somewhere, with enough power to watch over us? I shivered as I stood and stared at Shannon as she continued fighting her friends to get at me. Was the devil real? What if he could find a way into reality from the labyrinths of our collective imagination? We could find out all these answers and more. I turned around and checked my hands and pockets. I dropped the compass to my earliest memory, and it was gone. Only reality remained. I could feel my young self picking it up from the grass at that very moment decades before. I was finding where I'd left it. For a moment, a short moment, my mind had been so alive with possibilities and wonder. But at least I knew where the compass had come from now. Now that it's gone, I have to wonder if I ever really found a compass that could take me to fond memories. It feels surreal, and the only thing I have left of it is a memory of what it looked like. I sat on the porch alone for an hour and felt nothing but... A deep, swelling darkness. I wrote this to get it out. There's no moral, no lesson learned in any of this, no creature or terror. Just a brief moment of possibility and danger, and then nothing more. And our friend was still dead. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. Got another one from Tate, and uh, one from frequent contributor to the channel, Matt Demersky, or M59Gar, if you know him as his, uh, his alias online or whatever. I enjoyed both. Um, the first one made me uncomfortable, because <laughs> just like the person in the story, I'm not a huge fan of spiders. I wouldn't say I have complete arachnophobia, but I'd rather them not come near me at all, ever, actually. Um, I've actually had a spider land on my face before. I was maybe 14 or 15. I had pretty long hair at the time, and at first I thought it was just my hair tickling the side of my face, but when I tried to brush it away, a spider fell off my face and onto my pillow, and I just freaked the hell out and slept in my mom's living room that night. <laughs> so, um, as far as the second story, it gets pretty existential if you think about it too much, because you're 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 basically 
traveling back in time, more or less, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it has the same implications as traveling back in time. Like when they traveled back to that construction site, their previous selves weren't there. The construction site was just there. So I want to pass the question off to you all. If you had this compass and you had the ability to travel to basically a memory, would you and where would you go? Or if you wouldn't, why wouldn't you? I'm kind of interested. I think it would be really cool to be able to just kind of experience it from a different perspective. There are a lot of memories I would love to be able to have an outside looking in type of perspective on some memories that are kind of vague in my head that I just kind of want to remember a little bit better. And maybe that would help. Who knows? Um, but with all that said, I want to give a quick thank you to all of my $5 patrons and members. Uh, some people have asked how to join Patreon. Link is near the top of the description. It's just you go there, sign up with your Gmail or whatever email you have, and then you can just pledge a dollar or five bucks. Dollar and five bucks gets you videos early. Five bucks gets you a shout out at the end of the video. So with all that said, here are all the $5 patrons and members. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Alice E, Amethyst, Amet, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt Flat Out, Jennifer Damron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justin Yezaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Fanning, Lee Riggs, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nikki Parsons, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New Ongoing 24, Tiger Princess, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate every single one of you. Anyone who shows up, watches the videos, leaves a like, comments, whatever, I appreciate all of it. Thank you all. Have a wonderful night, evening, or afternoon, or morning, wherever you are. As always, take care out there.